Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, and it's on the screen in front of you. Would to God you could bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. And Paul's saying he doesn't usually talk about himself, but he's got to deal with these false claims of false apostles that are driving him to talk more about himself in the ears of the Corinthian church as he writes to them this second letter. Verse 2, he says, I am jealous over you with godly jealousy. I am jealous, and we think a jealousy is not a very good quality, but Paul says this is godly jealousy. I gotcha. I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Perhaps we'd think about the parents of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who gave her an espousal to a good man named Joseph. And in the espousal period, which lasted a year or more, she was supposed to be pure and he pure until a year later when they'd both been proven pure, then they would go through a marriage ceremony and come together. Of course, we know in her case, the Holy Spirit came upon her. She conceived our Lord Jesus Christ. She was still virgin but she carried in her body the developing Son of God until she brought him to birth. Paul uses this idea of espousal to say, you, Corinthian church, you're espoused. You're not married yet. The, the wedding is to come when we go to be with him in heaven. The bridegroom is there and we're not yet. But he says, I've espoused you to one husband. I want to present you as a chaste virgin to Christ we don't use the word chaste as much as I wish we did anymore. Chastity is understood only in usually bad references to the medieval period and physical means of keeping chastity. But chaste means pure, means innocent, means clean. I want to present you, Paul says, I want to present you clean to Christ our bridegroom when we get to heaven. So he says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. I am like a parent who's got a daughter. You're the daughter. And I want you to stay clean. You can think of this like the father of a young teenager might offer to her a promise ring so that she will remember his love for her, the father's love for her, and keep that ring on until a better young man offers to her an engagement ring and then a wedding ring. Paul says, I'm jealous over you with a godly jealousy. I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. And then he says why he's concerned. I fear, verse 3. Well, before we go on to verse 3, I'm sorry, I skip ahead of myself sometimes. Paul loved his people. And he loved them greatly. We could look at a couple other scriptures. Second scripture we'll look at is Philippians 1.8. Philippians 1.8, page 1257. Paul just says to the Philippian church, the church in Macedonia where he first reached Europe with the gospel, God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. He says it's a really strong, intense longing I just just love you, and I miss you, and I wish I was there with you. You remember he began his ministry in Philippi with a prayer meeting with women down by the river because there weren't enough men there to have a synagogue, Jewish men. 
And then he cast a demon out of a demon-possessed woman so that she'd stop prophesying about they were the ones that told the people the truth about God because he didn't need testimony from a demon. And because that ended the gain, the income of the masters of this demon-possessed slave, they took him before the magistrates, ignored the fact that he was a Roman citizen, threw him in the prison, threw him in the jail, in a pit, <coughs> in a cave. And there he and his companion prayed and sang hymns until midnight, and then God said, everybody's out, everybody's free, because Paul, my beloved, is in there. And he shared the gospel with the jailer who would have killed himself, except Paul said, no, no, we're all here, nobody's left. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and your house. I think the jailer must have been listening to Paul talk about the, in his prayer and in his song about the work of Jesus as he had died for the sins of all mankind. Paul loved the Philippians, even though he started his ministry there in the jailhouse. Yeah, jail ministry is a good thing. He also expresses his great love to the Thessalonian church. First Thessalonians 2, verses 11 and 12, he says, You know how we, this is page 1268, you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father does his children that you would walk worthy of God who's called you unto his kingdom and glory. The Thessalonian church, he started in just a very short period, three or four weeks on the road after he left Philippi. And these Thessalonians raised up threat against him so that he could not easily return there. But he loved them. The believers, he loved them. And we, he said, we had exhorted or encouraged. He encouraged them and comforted and charged every one of them. As a father does his children, he said, you get busy about it. Walk worthy of God. It's not sit around and enjoy the Bible. It's walk worthy of God who's called you into his kingdom and glory. We know that Jesus draws all men unto him because he's been lifted up on the cross. He's got the gospel going out by the power of the Holy Spirit to all who will believe. But when we read about the calling of God in the Bible, usually it's saved people being called to serve the Lord. They're called or they're elected to serve the Lord. And Paul to the Thessalonians isn't saying, oh, it's so great God picked you out of all the lost people to be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you walk worthy of God. He called you to get busy about his work. We're going to go back now to where we were in 2 Corinthians. Espoused to one husband. In my notes, I explain again what I've already said here. Firmly promised and now going through the period of waiting to prove purity before the wedding. They, Corinthians, and we, Tallahassee, not Tallahassee, where are we? Tampians. <laughs> I lived in Tallahassee for a dozen years. Sometimes this Florida State thing rubs out of me. But we are the bride of Christ, our bridegroom, but we haven't come to the wedding feast yet. We're still espoused brides and we're supposed to keep ourselves chaste. And now, and now we're going to look at this idea of espousal. Verse uh, the the next place we'll look is John chapter 3. That wasn't the right bookmark. Let's try that again. There it is. John chapter 3, page 1118. 
John the Baptist was questioned by his disciples, and he sent some of his disciples back to Jesus. Verse 25 says there arose a question between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purifying, because he's baptizing after all. And they came, those disciples of John came to John and said, Rabbi, that fellow, he that was with thee beyond Jordan, to whom thou bearest witness, remember, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that same fellow, the same is baptizing. Actually, his disciples were baptizing, and all men come to him. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if it were so? So in answer to that, where they're saying, shouldn't you be jealous of that Jesus guy? John answered and said, a man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You yourselves, disciples, you bear me witness. You remember I said this, I said I am not the Christ. I'm not. I am sent before him. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. John used to, goes to this illustration of a wedding as well. The groom is the one that gets the bride. There's another man there, the friend of the bridegroom. We sometimes call him the best man. The friend of the bridegroom, that's John's place, that stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. I am so happy that the bride is getting more and more fit for her bridegroom. My joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase. I must decrease. He, Jesus, he's the one that comes from above. Isn't that good? All right, we're going to look one more place about weddings here because it's in the text. Romans 7, verse 4, page 1199, Paul is using marriage as an illustration about the gospel and the law. He starts in verse 1 of chapter 7. He says, Don't you know, brethren, I speak to them that know the law, how the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. The law is the king. The woman which has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. If the husband is dead, she's loosed from the law of her husband. So if while her husband liveth, she's married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she's freed from that law, so she's no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, you, you believers, also are become dead to the law. To, by the body of Christ, it's like you died. You're dead to the law, the law is dead to you, that you should be married to another, and it's not adultery. Because of Christ's death on the cross, paying for sin, nailing the law to the cross, you can be married to another. Jesus, who is raised from the dead, and the point of it is to bring forth fruit unto God. Paul says, isn't it good? Jesus broke that bond that we were under bondage to the law, Jewish believers anyway. And then they're married to the one that was raised from the dead. We're going to turn our page in our notes. So his purpose, as we saw back in the first verse, so that the Corinthians, when they're presented to Christ, would be presented a chaste virgin, clean, innocent, modest, perfect. And now we go on to verses 3 and 4. 
2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4, page 1237. But I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he that cometh preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you just might well bear with him. Paul is worried about how firm their foundation is, not that they might not be saved, but that they might wander away from the salvation that they have. Let's go back to verse 3. I fear lest by any means, and then he says what he's worried about most, as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. The serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety tells me something, tells me that Paul and the Corinthians both were familiar with the account we have in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. There's Adam, there's Eve, and in chapter 3 there's a serpent. We're going to look at page 8 in the Schofield Bible at the specific passage. Genesis chapter 3, the serpent was more subtle. It means tricky, tricky than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He's different. And he said unto the woman, here's a serpent talking. You think this is a serpent empowered by and dwelt by representing God's adversary, the devil. And he said to the woman, yes, yes. He starts by saying yes. <laughs> Yay. You know, when you start a question with the word yes, you're trying to get them to say yes. It's a it's sales technique. Yes. Has God said, what's that? He's questioning, did God say this? He's questioning the word of God. We are not in favor of people questioning the word of God. We think we should take it and receive it and understand it and believe it and obey it. He says, yes, say yes. Not you. The serpent says, yes, has God said, you, ye, that's you and Adam, that's plural, you shall not eat, you shall not eat. That's kind of a negative way. Is that how God said it? That's not how God said it. He said, you may eat of every tree of the garden. You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Isn't that what God said? Say yes, Eve. And the woman said, no, 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 no. The woman said unto the serpent, why did she answer him? Maybe they were busy like Dr. Doolittle talking to the animals. I don't know. But she didn't hesitate. She went up, struck up a conversation with this tricky thing. We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, except this one, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. That one, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Well, you know, I don't find anywhere in the command of God to Adam, that he said, don't touch it, which raises two possibilities. Either Eve didn't hear it from God, she heard it from Adam, and Adam maybe thought he was doing a good thing and taught her, don't eat it, don't even touch it. <laughs> I don't know. Or she just decided to change it herself. I don't know which. Either Adam changed it or Eve changed it, but they changed what God actually said because he didn't say you won't touch it. But she ends her sentence quoting, supposedly quoting God, lest you die. That's not what God said either. God said thou shalt surely die. If we look back in chapter 2, 
Thou shalt surely die. And Satan, the serpent, in verse 4, gets it closer to what God said than she did. The serpent said unto the woman, but he makes it a lie. You shall not surely die. Now there's something. God said, thou shalt surely die. The serpent said, ye shall not surely die. There's a difference between those two statements, a significant difference. Somebody's lying, and it isn't God. God does know there's still the serpent talking. I usually try to use a snaky voice, but I'm not bothered with it now. God does know that in the day you eat thereof, your eyes shall be opened. He's trying to keep back from you something good. God knows if you eat, you'll be opened, and you'll be like, and it's the word Elohim, the same as the word God. It's plural. It's used of false gods as well. When you see little G-O-D-S like you see here, that's the word Elohim, the plural of the name, of the title of God. And it's used of the demon gods of the Old Testament. Here it's used of what the serpent promises Eve that God thinks he's, they shouldn't have. But God knows you'll be like me, like Elohim, knowing good and evil. But, oh, there's the, the problem. The serpent presents that as though it's a good thing. You know, good and evil. Well, we need to know good and evil, don't we? Well, no, you know what? If God doesn't want us to know good and evil, we maybe we'd just stay with good and not learn about the evil. But Eve swallowed the bait. He is the trickiest serpent in the world. We're going to go back just one chapter to see what God actually said here to emphasize this again. In chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 16 and 17, here we are, God's saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. That's a nice thing. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't think Adam even knew what that meant. Thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Now this is before he made Adam's companion. Verse 18 begins that account. So either Eve misquoted God or misquoted Adam because in chapter 3 she goes on to um, we can eat, we should not touch it lest we die. And then the serpent says, you shall not surely die. As I said, he's a liar. You say, that's awfully harsh. Oh, yeah, that's awfully harsh. I'm not the first one to call him a liar. In John chapter 8, Jesus is in the midst of a pretty harsh discussion with his enemies, the Pharisees. In John chapter 8, page 1127, John chapter 8, Jesus says, Why do you not understand my speech? Because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. That probably went over real well. And the lusts of your father you will do. He's got purposes. The devil has purposes, designs, desires. And you're going to do what he wants. He was a murderer from the beginning. That's where we were there in Genesis, isn't it? Chapter 3. And what did he do the first thing he did? 
he caused Adam and Eve to die, not physically, but to be separated from God himself because they disobeyed God. And God said, if you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. He was a murderer. He caused Adam and Eve to be dead spiritually from God. From the very beginning, he abode not in the truth. He knew what God had said. He didn't stick with it. He changed it. There was no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaketh of his own. He's a liar and the father of it. And Jesus is saying these words, these harsh words, to people he calls the children of the devil who have his character. You'll do what the devil does. There's murder in you and lies. He says, because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. And then he throws this in their face. Which of you convinces me, convicts me of sin? I dare not say that. I'd have too many people standing up to say, let me have the next number. I don't need to pretend I'm without sin. But Jesus did not pretend. He said to those who hated him the worst, anybody here know something against me? Which of you convinces me of sin? And if I say the truth, why don't you believe me? Now Paul, in another letter, in a letter to to Timothy, Paul speaks about this event back in the Garden of Eden. And I I hit the wrong bookmark there. I didn't set it up right. It's 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy, in chapter 2. This is page 1275, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 14. We'll zip it down to 14 here. Well, almost there. There we go. Adam was first formed, and then Eve, referencing his confidence in the truth of Genesis. And Adam was not deceived. God told Adam, Adam told Eve, or maybe Eve heard it from God, But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. The devil lied to her. The devil fooled her. She was deceived. And that's what Paul had said he was worried about. He was worried about you being corrupted as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. I looked up that word corrupted there in, in verse 2 Corinthians eleven three. It's I don't know if I can pronounce it even. Phthio, phthio, shriveled, withered, spoiled, ruined. Fith, fith, yeah. Great pronunciation there. Corrupted what? Corrupted from the simplicity. Corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. Corinthians, Tampaans, town and countryans. <laughs> Our message is simple. It doesn't mean it's simple to present it. It does mean it is simple. The word simple is haplotes, singleness, simplicity, sincerity, mental honesty, free from pretense and hypocrisy. It's not a trick. Our message is the truth of the Bible, simple. 
Simplicity is not simple to communicate. It takes work. It takes practice. I'm going to borrow Pastor Martinez's sin here. He's got a block of sin. You may have noticed this sin before. But the simple message can be communicated simply if this hand represents you and me and I appropriately put the block of sin on us. We've all got sin on us except Jesus. Which of you convinces me of sin? If this hand could represent God in heaven who's perfect, who sent his perfect son down to earth, he was sinless. Which of you convinces me of sin? But 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, died on the cross, paid the penalty of sin, was buried, rose again without sin. And the rest of the verse says this, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. When a person believes in Jesus, the sin bearer, God covers that person up with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And on that ground, covered in the righteousness of Jesus, I deserve, because of his righteousness, to go to heaven. We have a simple message. It is often corrupted. We don't want our message, our minds, to be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. False messages are corrupted from simplicity. I will mention just one in the idea of false messages here in in Hebrews chapter 13. This is Paul also, I think. In chapter 13, at the end of his letter, his magnificent letter to the Jewish believers who were leaning toward going back to Judaism, he says, don't do it, it's done, it's dead, it's over with. To them at the end of the letter, he says, be not carried about with divers and strange doctrines. Don't be off in this and that in the other direction. Stay with the simplicity. It is a good thing that the heart be established with grace. What's that word mean? Grace. Unmerited favor. I'm a sinner. I still am, even though Jesus has paid the penalty. But when he took my sin and covered me with his righteousness, to receive that, I deserve nothing. I did nothing. I don't earn it. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, by grace, unmerited favor, you stand saved through faith. You say, that's not what it says. It does. The verb there is a perfect tense verb. It refers to something that was completed in the past and has a continuing effect in the present. It's not just a past tense, you are sa- you, by grace are you saved, it's all right. But it's so much clearer to get the idea. You were saved and you're still saved and nothing can change that. By grace you stand saved through faith. Not of yourselves, salvation is not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a good thing that the hearts be established with grace. Establish your heart. Get it founded on this doctrine, this truth of the simplicity of the gospel of salvation by grace through faith plus nothing. And then he says, not with meats, which have not profited them which have been occupied therein. There's a distraction. There's a corruption of the gospel that says, let's get all involved and talk about questionable things. I don't think you should do that, but I think I'm okay to do that. That's meats. It's okay to eat meats offered to idols. It's not okay to eat meats offered to idols. That's questionable things, meats. 
and get all wrapped up in talking about that and worrying about that and arguing about that keeps people from paying attention to the simplicity of the gospel. It really does. Some people thinking about the gospel, I try to logically say, well, it must mean that after you're saved, you do things, you live better. No, it doesn't must mean that. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you're saved. You should walk in good works. God has before ordained that you should walk in them. Doesn't say you will. Doesn't say you can check out other people, see whether or not they're saved by checking out their good works. It doesn't say that. It just says God has, as you said, called or elected us to serve him with this gospel message, taking it to other lost people. He has not called us to inspect other people's salvation or other people's fruit. He has called us to serve him, our bridegroom that we hope to get home to soon. So, not meats, not meats. I will go back again to you say, are you going to ever teach 2 Corinthians chapter 11? Oh, maybe. It says the simplicity is in Christ, back in chapter 11, verse 3. The simplicity that is in Christ. That's where our simplicity is. It's all about him, not about us and what we're doing. Oh, how hard I studied to get a good grade on the test. No, not about our efforts, not about our turning, not about our serving. Our simplicity is the simplicity that is in Christ, the message of Jesus the perfect Son of God, who loved the world, came to the world, born of a virgin, lived the perfect life, went to the cross, not that they could make him, but because he was willing to go to die as a substitute, to be the sacrifice for sins, died under the penalty of sin. And God in Isaiah says he'll look upon the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He was buried, and that is important to mention because in Many religions, they say, well, he just he didn't really die. He just swooned away. No, he was buried and dead and in the grave for three days. And then he rose again, never to be touched by death again. This is all we need for life and for eternity. I want to look and see if I have this note here. I, I mentioned it. I do. I want to look at this. We're going to bring this up bigger here. Let me just do this. There's an old commentator named Albert Barnes. And I wanted to look at what he said, not about the whole verse, but about the simplicity that is in Christ. From simple and single-hearted devotedness to him, from pure and unmixed attachment to him, Paul was weary, worried that they'd go away from in Christ. The fear was that their affections would be fixed on other objects and the singleness and unity of their devotedness to him would be destroyed. From his pure doctrines in Christ by the admixture of philosophy, let's just invent this idea of Gnosticism, we know so much. By the opinions of the world, there was danger that their minds should be turned away from their hold on the simple truths that Christ had taught. From that simplicity of mind and heart, that childlike candor and docility, that freedom from all guile and dishonesty and deception which so eminently characterized the Redeemer, Christ had a single aim, was free from all guile, was perfectly honest, never made use of any improper arts, never resorted to false appearances, and never deceived. 
His followers should in like manner be artless and guileless. There should be no mere cunning, no trick, no craft in advancing their purposes. There should be nothing but honesty and truth in all that they say. Paul was afraid that they would lose this beautiful simplicity and artlessness of character and manner, and that they would insensibly be led to adopt the maximum maxims of mere cunning, of policy, of expediency, of seductive arts which prevailed so much in the world, a danger which was imminent among the shrewd and cunning people of Greece, which is confined to no time and no place. Christians should be more guileless than even children are, as pure and free from trick and from art and cunning as was the Redeemer himself. Number four, from the simplicity in worship which the Lord Jesus commended and required. The worship which the Redeemer designed to establish was simple, unostentatious and pure, strongly in contrast with the gorgeousness and corruption of the pagan worship and even with the imposing splendor of the Jewish temple service. He intended that it should be adapted to all lands and such as could be offered by all classes of people, a pure worship claiming first the homage of the heart and then such simple external expressions as should best exhibit the homage of the heart. How easily might this be corrupted? What temptations were there to attempt to corrupt it by those who had been accustomed to the magnificence of the temple service? And who would suppose that the religion of the Messiah could not be less gorgeous than that which was designed to shadow forth his coming? And by those who had been accustomed to the splendid rites of pagan worship, and who would suppress that the true religion ought not to be less costly and splendid than the false religion had been. If so much expense had been lavished on false religions, how natural to suppose that equal costliness at least should be bestowed on the true religion. Accordingly, the history of the church for a considerable part of its existence has been little more than a record of the various forms in which the simple worship instituted by the Redeemer has been corrupted until all that was gorgeous in pagan ceremonies and splendid in the Jewish ritual has been introduced as a part of Christian worship. Number five, from simplicity and dress and manner of living, our Redeemer's dress was simple, his manner of living was simple, his requirements demand great simplicity and plainness of apparel and manner of life. It gives a couple references. Yet how much Yet how much proneness is there at all times to depart from this? What a besetting sin it has been in all ages to the church of Christ. How much pain should there be that the very simplicity that is in Christ should be observed by all who bear the Christian name. I don't know if you you thought that was worthwhile, but but I kind of liked it. I did, so I thought I'd read it to you. We've got a few minutes left. We'll go on now. In... Verse 4 of chapter 11, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul looks forward to somebody else, he that cometh. He that cometh. This is not a good arrival. There is another apostle, not Paul, a false apostle, a false messenger with a false message. And if he preaches another Jesus, 
But Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And, Paul, and Peter in Acts chapter 4 and verse 12 said about Jesus, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, Paul said in Galatians 1, 6, I marvel that you are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ unto another gospel. Now some people think that's Paul. I kind of think that it's God the Holy Spirit sharing through Paul's mouth the truth of the gospel as Jesus promised he would be. This is the Holy Spirit. And he says you're gone away from the one that got you to believe in Jesus to some other mess. And he says another gospel, verse 7, which is not another Two different ways of saying another in the Greek language. One of them means another of the same kind. Jesus said, I'll send you another comforter. That means another one of the same kind. And this is not that, which is not another. Paul says it's not another of the same kind. It's a different sort. It's a different character of so-called good news. Somebody's coming and preaching a bad news to you. Somebody's coming... Somebody's coming. John, in my notes, it says, John also told of people who were coming who were other. And we got to put the, what happened to my, i got to get this back here. We go. There it is. Get my references back over here. 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. Go back home here. We, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 18 Little children, John said, wrote, it is the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now there are many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. You mean there's supposed to be divisions? Yeah. Over what? The gospel. People that teach a gospel of works have left us. They went out from us. If they still preach grace, salvation by grace through faith plus nothing, great, they're still in our camp. But they went out from us, or they would have stayed. The difference that we make is not about what you call your church, it's not about how you take the Lord's Supper or how you baptize. The difference we make is the gospel. People that leave about the gospel, doesn't matter how much you like everything else they do, if they're gone with the gospel, they've gone out from us, John and Paul and you and me, I hope. <clears throat> In chapter 2, verse 22, he says, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denies the Father and the Son. In chapter 4, in verse 3, every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. This is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Paul was dealing, Peter was, what am I talking about? John. John was dealing with the beginnings of what came to be called Gnosticism. People that did not deny that Jesus was God, 
They denied that he was really a man. Around today, we run into Jehovah's Witnesses more often. They deny that Jesus is a, is a God, is God himself. But in John's day, the denial was that God really became a man. He didn't confess that Jesus the Christ is come in the flesh. They said, oh, he just appeared to be a man. That's somebody that's gone out from us. In Second John, the little letter called Second John, in verse 7, John goes on, many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. That was the issue. Believe it, he was really a man. John said, I ate fish with him. I ate with him. I drank with him. I walked with him. This is a deceiver, the one that says he's not a real man. He's a deceiver and an antichrist. And Jesus himself warned about this kind of person coming. And I only picked one reference. He did it multiple times. But in Mark chapter 13, in Mark chapter 13, in verse 21, I'll get down to it here. Then if any man shall say to you, Lo, look, here is Christ. Or, oh, look, he's over there. Believe him not. Many false Christs and false prophets shall rise and show signs and wonders to seduce. There's the serpent again. If it were possible, even the elect. Even the elect. And what did... Paul say on the end of this verse, somebody comes like that, you just might well bear with him. You might put up with him. I think he's being sarcastic. I think he's using um, irony, as we call it. What's the matter with you is what he's saying. What's the matter with you? We just ran out of time. I'll have to stop here, but we'll just read a tiny little bit of chapter 5. You see where he's going with this, chapter 11, verse 5. I was not a whit behind the chiefest apostles. Paul's going to tell a little bit about himself. That's his folly, that he gets to talking about himself. And he's going to do that as we finish on through the next uh, 10 verses or so here, 10 or 11 verses. But we'll have to break it off there for the lack of further time in the Sunday school period. Thank you for listening so closely and so attentively. Father in heaven, we thank you for these who have come to hear your word. We pray that we have been an encouragement to them and a challenge to them. And if there's any listening here in the auditorium or out on the, on the wire, we would pray, Father, they'd think about this truth of what simplicity of the gospel, what Jesus did for them. If they have never put their own personal faith in Jesus, believed in him as their savior, accepted his promise of eternal life, why they do so before the day wears on. In Jesus' name.